Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. Hi, I'm Richard Roper. We're going to get in the Wayback Machine. Cool. Take you back to a year in history, this month in that year in history, almost this date on that year in history. Almost this very hour as people are listening <laughs> to Screen Time. Uh, four movies that were great but also very influential all came out the same month in 1971. And my math tells me that 2021 minus 1971 is 50. But in those 50 years, those four films changed the way yes. we looked at movies. Very so much we'll so. talk about that. Plus, what to watch and what not to watch yes. coming your way on this episode. But first, the digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing that serves your overall business success. Because they believe that today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. And now for something completely different. I wish to make a complaint. Oh, sorry, uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about this parrot. What I purchased not half an hour ago from this very boutique. Oh yes, sir, the Norwegian Blue. What's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's dead. That's what's wrong with it. No, no, it's, it's resting. Look. Look, my lad, I know a dead parrot when I see one, and I'm looking at one right now. No, that's not dead. It's uh, resting. That is legendary comedy troupe Monty Python from their feature film, and now for something completely different, which was the first film that they made they went on to make some others which were ginormous successes and completely influential but this is where it all started for american audiences and that was their famous transition they would do when they'd go from sketch to sketch on monty python's flying circus which was sort of the british version of saturday night live but before saturday night live they'd go from one wacky bit to another they'd show an anchor at a desk saying and now for something completely different but the anchor would be at a desk that would be on the edge of the ocean or the anchor would be naked so it was something completely <laughs> different now i did cheat just a little bit here ro when i talked about the anniversary month october 1971 and now for something completely different was released in the u.s a day or two before October 1st, like the 28th or so, but then went wide, you know, as they used to do back in those days. So it's essentially an October 1971 You are just trying to get release. internet trolls not to email us. Yeah, I'm like, right. someone's going to say, you know, the official release date opened in New York and Los Angeles, but it played, you know, in October. Um, and for people who don't know, look up Monty Python's Flying Circus, you legendary comedic group. But it was pretty cool because these were, a, basically it was a greatest hits collection of their British TV show. But American audiences, it had yet, yet to come to PBS. So they flocked to theaters to see this crazy troupe doing this politically incorrect, edgy stuff. And this was a time in the early 70s where we had um, movies like The Groove Tube and Kentucky Fried Movie. They were drive-in type movies where they were R-rated and teenagers would go see these things because there was swearing and there was nudity and there was all kinds of, you know, comedy that you weren't getting in movies like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. You know, like kind of the standard 60s stuff. So it was kind of, Monty Python started, I think, as a TV show in 69 in Great Britain. And it really kind of ushered in a whole new age of comedy. I had the great opportunity to work with John Cleese a couple of years ago here in Chicago. That. That's right. Yeah. At a movie theater event where we sat and did a Q&A, 90 minutes. Amazing. 
uh, on two successive nights. And it was really one of the highlights of my career because here's this guy that I watched on Monty Python's Flying Circus when I was a little kid. It was on the PBS station here in Chicago, WTTW, Sunday nights. And it was just so countercultural, so amazing. And they went and bought the album. They actually had an album that was the exact movie, just the audio version of it, because that's what they did back then in the 1970s. And it was it was ingenious what they were doing. It was you know John Cleese and Eric Idle and Graham Chapman and uh, all the rest of the people. Yeah. I don't want to leave anybody behind here, but they, they were just they went on to make you know Monty Python, Holy Grail, Life of Brian, and then uh, John Cleese did Faulty Towers, which was a huge hit, and Michael Palin was in A Fish Called Wanda. They, you know they continued to do amazing work, and they really were you know if you look at National Lampoon and the National Lampoon Radio Hour, so much of that was you know in step with and and actually influenced by. Monty Python, because they also would incorporate, you know, musical numbers that were good because, and they were funny, but they were satiric, but they also had talent. So right. I remember, I can think about it to this day. They, they did one about uh, a guy named Dennis Moore, and he was sort of like Robin Hood, but he was dumb. And the lyrics were Dennis Moore, Dennis Moore, he steals from the poor and gives to the rich. Stupid bitch, stupid bitch. That's what they, and he would say. And he turned to the camera and say, "What?" And they're like, "Well, you're stealing from the poor and giving to the rich." And it was just that kind of absurdist comedy. So, and now for something completely different, uh, a great movie that kind of introduced American a lot of American audiences to the Monty Python troupe. Changed comedy as well because Absolutely. British comedy had already made that transition. Their experience in World War II was very different than the American experience yeah. in World War II. There was great sacrifice and tragedy Literally on the American side. Out. Yeah. Right. But but th- this was the formation in the exact same era. You had yeah. the formation of the Beatles, the Who, the Rolling Stones, all of those countercultural icons. Yeah. And Monty Python was the comedy equivalent of those. Brilliantly said. I want to go through some other ones, and there's no, and now, well, actually, it's perfect to say, and now for something completely different, because the next movie I want to talk about that did come out in October 1971, Ro, mm-hmm. is The French Connection. Uh, this is an Academy Award-winning film, won several Academy Awards, Best Picture. Gene Hackman won Best Actor and several other Academy Awards. And this also kind of, along with the movie Bullet, ushered in the era of the gritty, realistic, modern cop thriller it also included the era of the car chase yeah. both of those films kicked off that era as a matter of fact they hired the same guy over and over and over again yeah. to actually choreograph and pull off the car chases but there is something completely different okay. about french connection than bullet bullet is this brooding fascinating really well done all about texture okay. film the french connection is less brooding more angry it's pugilistic it yeah it really it, is that's it, a well, great way of putting it it's cold it takes place there's this great moment in that film where gene hackman is popeye doyle which by the way was all based on a true story yes, the french absolutely. connection yes yes bullet absolutely. not exactly but no. the french connection was and you had this new york cop who was taking on heroin importers and he was gonna crack this case just a single guy and his partner And what was amazing was this one scene that takes place in Midtown Manhattan, December, January, cold. You can actually see the, you know, the the steam coming out of their breaths. And here's Gene Hackman standing outside a really fancy restaurant, holding up one of those little cups of coffee that you get in New York that had like the Grecian diner, the little stick, the little uh, wooden stick, right? Uh, And he's standing there watching this rich 
international heroin magnate yeah. eat this luxurious, like, seven-course lunch yep, yep. sitting on the same side of the banquette as his partner in crime at this French restaurant or whatever it was. Yep. Because he was French. The, the international heroin smuggler right. was French. They called him Frog One, which you probably wouldn't say these days. But, you know, <laughs> that, that was 1971, folks. Right. Uh, but, but, but uh, And you watch it, and, and that scene, when I was seven years old and saw that movie, has stayed with me. Yeah. my entire time because I'm like that's what cop work is really like it's not necessarily chasing somebody although you get plenty of that in the film it's probably the most true to form police drama ever because it shows the hard work and just the the toiling hours of being on your own trying to figure something yeah. out yeah it really had that documentary style I want to digress and talk about a couple of things you mentioned there first of all bullet you're right about that uh, and for people who have seen Zodiac, the great, great David Fincher film, and Mark Ruffalo is playing a real-life San Francisco-area detective, and he had that shoulder holster. Remember that kind of unique thing for the time where he had that kind of thing around his neck there? And Steve McQueen spent time with him, and that's why in Bullet he's wearing that. So that was fiction imitating real life. As you mentioned, the French Connection's based on a real-life case, and Roy Scheider, by the way, plays... Gene Hackman's partner. Right. You know, you want to talk about a great duo. This is Roy Scheider three years before Jaws, and it's incredible. And William Friedkin, who directed The French Connection, gave a lot of credit to a movie called Z, which he said was the first crime thriller that made it look as if the cameras just happened to be there as stuff was happening, like a documentary. So when you watch The French Connection, it's not like these zooming shots over the river and pan this way and zoom that way. A lot, of, and you mentioned that you know the famous car chase scene. There's cameras like mounted like on the bumpers, and they sped up the film, you know, or slowed it down so that it, when they're shooting it, so it looks you know speeded up. And they said there were sometimes when the stunt drivers would crash into each other when they weren't supposed to. They're supposed to just <laughs> narrowly miss, and they kept that in there. And it should be noted that it wasn't really a car chase. It was, it was a, a car chasing a train. train. Yeah, in Bensonhurst. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it is, it, it, to this day, it goes down as the best car chase scene of all time because it was that. The best car chase, car chase scene, car versus car yeah. scene, obviously, is Bullet, followed Closely by Freebie and the Bean. How dare you? Which- well, hey, James Caan, <laughs> by the way, and Alan Arkin. That, that was a very good... That, but- that was a movie that I saw in the theaters, and there was a little bit of nudity, and I didn't think I should be in the theater anymore <laughs> at the River Oaks in Calumet City. But And then, you know, To Live and Die in L.A., and even recently Baby Driver. There's been, you know, oh, Drive, uh, great stuff, but it really kind of all springs from that. And if you watch the movie, too... Uh, you know, the anti-hero, things don't really go his way, you know, with that French drug dealer. I'll just say that. I hate to mm-hmm. give spoilers when the movie's been out for 50 fucking years. But, yeah, yeah. you know, because in real life, it was like, well, sometimes you don't really get the big whale as you would in a standard Hollywood movie. Love the French Connection. It has a very good sequel, by the way. Yes. You know, sequels generally don't yeah, do very with, well. With Hackman back as yeah. Popeye Doyle. Uh, yeah. yeah, great. It came out just a couple of years later. Another uh, seminal film from 1971, October of 1971, Ro. Play Misty for me. Memorable for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I know it, it kind of gives you the chills because it's about a radio host mm-hmm. and a stalker. And I'm not saying you ever had that. Well, you were a radio host. We'll just leave it at that. But uh, Clint Eastwood plays the popular DJ. This is also his first film as a director. This was his foray into directing. So he's a popular radio host. 
Now he's dating a, a wonderful gal played by Donna Mills, who I loved. You know, mm-hmm. she had been in stuff since she was a child. Uh, soap opera actress, beautiful, lovely, and she played you know this wonderful person. But he got a little restless, and the DJ has a one night stand with uh, Jessica Walter, uh, who you know we've seen in movies. Uh, recently, just passed away, oh. uh, but people remember her most recently from Arrested Development, right? right? And um, I remember her from Archer. Yeah, I mean, just well, <laughs> she's br- still brilliant. In. But this one night stand, it's it's this is again, this is 16, 17 years before fatal attraction. But that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't want to continue, and she keeps calling the station saying play Misty for me. Mm-hmm. You know, once, that's her request, the song Misty. And it's very chilling. And it is kind of ahead of its time in terms of like dealing with, you know, sort of local celebrity and stalkers. And also it's a cautionary tale, just like Fatal Attraction. It's like, well, if you hadn't done that, this wouldn't have happened, pal. And it's realism too, because it was shot in a real radio station in Northern California. Yeah. And it's like the real equipment. And I remember seeing that as a uh. kid and looking at that, because you think they were playing records and stuff. In radio, back in those days, you didn't play records. You played carts, which were basically eight-track tapes. It yes. just had two tracks yeah. on yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. And those were all the records. And, and I saw that for the first time. I'm like, what in the hell is that? The commercials, everything was on that. All the audio was on that. And it got me so curious that I started looking into it, again, as a little, like, eight- or nine-year-old. And I was so interested in radio as a result of that. I think that's what drove me in to doing that. It's amazing. It's amazing. Great stuff. And also, in October of 1971, we got the last picture show. You wouldn't believe how this country's changed. First time I seen it, there wasn't a mesquite tree on it. Or a prickly pear, neither. I used to own this land, you know. First time I watered a horse at this tank was more than 40 years ago. I reckon the reason why I always drag you out here is probably I'm just as sentimental as the next fella when it comes to old times. Old times. I brought a young lady swimming out here once, more than 20 years ago. It was after my wife had lost her mind my boys was dead. This is a, a glorious black and white film set in the 50s in a dying town in Texas where there's the last picture show and it's all about this sort of bleak life, but also people yearning and falling in love. And sometimes it's kind of forbidden love. An amazing cast. Uh, young Jeff Bridges, Ben Johnson, who won the Supporting Actor Oscar. Cloris Leachman, who amazing. won Supporting Actress Oscar. Yeah. Ellen Burstyn, who was amazing in there. And then a young Sybil Shepherd as the It Girl, who Peter Bogdanovich, the director, spotted her on the cover of a magazine and said, you're going to be in a movie. And, you know, that that's a whole other story for another time. But and apparently another podcast, too. Yeah, but a beautifully shot film, and it's based on a novel by Larry McMurtry of the same name, The Last Picture Show, one of my favorite writers of all time. He wrote the source material that became the movie HUD. He wrote Terms of Endearment. He wrote Lonesome Dove, which became wow. one of the great miniseries of all time. So, you know, he a lot of the stuff that Larry McMurtry wrote just had this great cinematic feel to it and then he won the oscar co-won the oscar for brokeback mountain which was based on another short story that he hadn't written but the writing is so rich and the characters are so heartbreaking and honest and real so if, if you haven't had the chance to see the last picture show please do last picture show followed a series of films from the 
late 50s through the 1960s about the loner guys in these towns that are yep. falling apart at the very end, whether it was Paul Newman or Frank Sinatra, they played these characters in these lush, golden-toned, mm. beautiful Panavision films. And then what Bogdanovich did was genius. He decided he was going to deconstruct all of that exactly. and take that modern kind of material, make it even more expressive and dirty, if you will, and kind of, you know, take the the review board to its maximum. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then do it in black and white. Yeah. And I, I always appreciate that because all of a sudden you're sort of in this this entire arc of films like that and you figure out oh, there's just going to be another one like it and then he cuts right across it. So yeah. you got to give him as weird as he is and as strange as some of the changes and, and directions of his career have been, you got to give him a ton of credit for deciding he was going to be a hippie director and go against yeah. all those big Hollywood yeah. guys. Yeah, and then and and you're you're so right because he's had his ups and downs, Peter Bogdanovich. You know, some other great films and then some legendary disasters. And just to bring it full circle, if you're a Sopranos fan, he's the therapist to Doctor Melfi, you know, <laughs> yes, friend. That's true. That's Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> that's him. That's true. All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna tell you what to watch and what not to watch. But before we do that, let's talk about Portillo's, the greatest single fast casual cuisine experience you're gonna have anywhere on the planet Earth, right down to the poppy seed bun. You're gonna enjoy it so much because it's one of the million great ingredients that Portillo's uses, whether it's the Italian beef or the sausage or the legendary chocolate cake. That's just all the beginning. Mm -hmm. The fries, the salads, the chicken, Telling you, if you have Portillo's, the burger, it, the burger's great. Yes, and and you can get beer at the Portillo's too if you go nice. into the store. Nice. I'm just gonna tell you right now, if you have a Portillo's near you and you've not eaten at a Portillo's before, let's say you live in California, Arizona, or Florida, where it's relatively new, you want to check it out. Take the Row and Roper endorsement here. It's one of the finest experiences you're gonna have ever in that kind of a food environment like fast casual you know it's not exactly fast food you can sit down it's nicer but it's super great portillos.com p-o-r-t-i-l-l-o-s.com ask your friends in chicago about it portillos.com love it's thursday it's a thursday three and what not to watch let's start with what not to watch I want to start with a reluctant what not to watch, and it's for Dope Sick on Hulu. It's a limited series based on a nonfiction book, and it's all about Purdue Pharma and how they introduced OxyContin into the public consciousness and made it such a huge thing. And you get so infuriated watching this, not because it's not good, but because you see what happened, where it starts off as them saying, you know, this is not addictive like other painkillers, and they even get the FDA to go along with that. And, of course, it was more addictive, if if nothing else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, it this is a series that wants to be like Spotlight or Dark Waters or Aaron Brockovich, like those feature films that expose corruption it's got a great cast. Michael Keaton plays a country doctor in a coal mining town, and he starts prescribing it for minors who are injured. And at first, he thinks it's a miracle drug. Uh, Rosario Dawson is a DEA agent who sees all this these spikes in crime and child abandonment and abuse and violence all tied to it. And then we see the, the point of view of the family the, that, that's behind uh, Purdue Pharma. Ro, what drove me nuts about this series is the shifting timelines, which they do so often now in these limited series. And they do it so much here that you get whiplash from it. And then they just go way too over melodramatic 
with their treatment of it where they don't have to because the, the, the story itself is strong enough. And there are tons of other documentaries and books out there that are that do a better job. So we're going to say what not to watch, mm. don't watch Dope Sick on Hulu. All right. And you see Purdue Pharma in the news right now because they have filed bankruptcy. They're going under as a result of this. Yeah, absolutely. So resonating to this day. And this story is a story that begins in the 90s and then all the way through the 2000s. Uh, the good stuff. The Thursday Three. Yes. This is where we love to talk about stuff that I want you to see. Uh, Succession on HBO. Season three, Ro. And if, for folks, I know it's been a big hit. This is all about this fictional uh, media conglomerate family. They, they're worth billions and they're always getting involved in all sorts of nefarious dealings. Brian <laughs> Cox plays the patriarch. I would say there's more than a little of Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch family and mm -hmm. a little bit of the Trump family mm -hmm. in this fictionalized version of it. And they're, they're the worst people in the world. And it's just fun to... There's nobody really to root for. People have said to me like, you know, this is one of those few shows where there's no one that you really root for and I'm like well billions I mean in terms of like who's a good person maybe not yeah, like that, yeah. Sopranos I mean there's yeah. a lot of shows where <laughs> there aren't a lot of heroes but they're, they're fascinating characters and I mean everybody in this show is so good and including Kieran Culkin who plays one of the four offspring of the of the mm -hmm. family patriarch and they're always backstabbing front stabbing and side stabbing each other the grown children trying to get dad's favor and then the you know there's federal investigations but then there's a buyout and then there's this and that and it's I will say this too they they said they decided not to address the pandemic in this season's arc, even though they filmed it after it broke out. And I, I love somebody involved with the show said, well, the truth is these people are so obnoxiously wealthy and arrogant. It really wouldn't have affected them. They wouldn't have been part of their lives because they're in giant chalets and getaway places and on private jets. So that's something that the little people would have to deal with. And they also felt that so many shows have addressed that, mm -hmm. that they just like, they're going, you know what, let's just stay in this fictional world where this is what's happening. And it won't really hold up as well. There's going to be a lot of art that comes out of this two, three-year span that's going to deal with it. Then there's going to be art that doesn't deal with it, and that art in film and television, I think, is going to hold up better because people are going to go back in time 30, 40 years from now. They're going to look back and go, oh, wait, what? Masks? Okay. Uh, it won't make as much sense to them, and they won't feel the I emotions. I, I agree completely. I think if you're a show like you know Chicago Med or something, you have to address it. You know, it would be crazy not to. But for a lot of these shows, which in Succession is completely a you know an escapist look at all these horrible wealthy people, and it's beautifully filmed. Everybody's always getting on private jets and helicopters, and all, you know having these amazing parties and stuff. And yeah, you're, you, you know it's a little bit of a hate watch because you're like okay, but it's it's fun. It's and you just kind of escape into their world so succession season three uh episode one is on october 17th that would be this sunday coming up and they're still gonna do it the old hbo way they're gonna give you one at a time and you'll like it sir <laughs> uh, another effort from hbo hbo max uh it's called what happened britney murphy and this is a two-part documentary series about britney murphy who uh, was this wonderful actress, and everybody kind of loved her, very sweet. She made her major film debut in the film Clueless as the object of the makeover, you know, mm -hmm. as, you know, Alicia Silverstone and Stacey Dash, they're like, oh, Ty, we're going to make her, we're going to do a makeover with her. And that kind of launched her career. 
She was in Eight Mile. She did A Girl Interrupted, a lot of prestige films. Just married with Ashton Kutcher, and she had a romance with him. So for a brief period of about seven or eight years, Brittany Murphy really had this career going. But even then, Roe, she was undergoing you know drastic uh, behavioral kind of weird kind of public appearances where she seemed out of it. She did a makeover almost like her character where all of a sudden she was blonde and ultra thin. And then she eventually married this guy named Simon Monjack, who was this British con artist who said he was a billionaire and owned collections of Vermeers and had done this and that and kind of fell under his spell. And then we, you know, we flash forward to the late 2000s and, and she dies at the age at the age of 32. And the, the cause of death is pneumonia, which has a lot of people saying, well, she's 32. Why yeah. pneumonia? And then a lot of people are pointing to either the husband and then Brittany's mom. And then a few months later, the husband dies of pneumonia. And it gets into all of that. So it's kind of a true crime look back at things. It's actually a very respectful and loving tribute to her as a, as a young woman, as an actor. And then it asks the question, what happened? Brittany Murphy. So that's a two-part documentary series on HBO. And then at number one? This is The Last Duel, and now we're talking about a big-budget, big-screen, theatrical-only release from the great Ridley Scott, director mm. of the Alien oh, movies. yes. Thelma and Louise, Black Hawk Down, Gladiator. Now, Ro, yeah. I gotta say, I love this film. It is based on the true story, and you know this true story. Everybody does from <laughs> the 14th century. Sure. Yeah. All right, so uh, Matt Damon... Is a is a is a squire turned knight. He's you know one of the king's leading warriors out there, and he gets married to the lovely Marguerite, played by the wonderful actress Jodie Comer, and his best friend is Legrit, who's played by Adam Driver. Ooh. And so you got this great cast. And this is one of those films that even though it's set in 14th century France, and everybody has names like Jean and Legrit <laughs> and Marguerite, they all speak. English, like the King's English. They, and that's just what they do in these movies. But, and this really happened in real life. Um, so uh, Damon's character of Jean goes off to war and Legrite goes to his, his lair, his castle, and rapes his wife, played by Marguerite. Takes her against her will. And back in those days, the crime would be against a man's property, believe it or not. That's what they would actually call that. And most women wouldn't even mention it because they'd be like, this will be shame. And if you accuse somebody of rape and you're not... Uh, proved to be right, they will torture you and kill you, the accuser. But she decides to step forward. And then Damon's character says, we will duel. If the courts allow it, we will actually duel. And whoever wins the duel will be vindicated because God will have shown who the real victor is. And all of this actually happened in 14th century France. So it's it's very much like Gladiator. Bloody battles where they do that close-up kind of quick cut, you know, mm -hmm. action sequences. And it's it was filmed at like Irish castles filling in for France. You know, it was beautiful vistas and everything. And the performances are amazing. And uh, Ben Affleck plays uh, like Count Pierre, who's like, you know, the, the wealthy guy who is just the hedonist and is just the worst person in the world and hates Damon's character, which is kind of fun. And the other thing is, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are the co-writers of this screenplay for this movie. It's the first time they've gotten screenplay credit since Goodwill Hunting. Wow. So it's kind of amazing. Could they win the Oscar again? I don't think so. And Nicole Holoff Center uh, also uh, wrote the screenplay with them. And it's amazing because she does films like uh, Lovely and Amazing, these character studies. So I think they, you know, they, they must have combined the two different types of styles. 
It's you know two and a half hours long. I thought it was fantastic. Is it is it over the top? Yeah, are some of the speeches like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, we're telling, we're showing how this has parallels to modern times. Yeah, but the actors are having a blast, even though they have some of the worst wigs in recent <laughs> movie history. I am so glad you said this, because when you watch the commercial for this on television, you're like, what is that? Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a Knights in Shining Armor kind of thing. Yeah. And a, Wait, is that Matt Damon? Wait, is that? Yeah. You know, it, you know like, and Adam Driver, I love, but, you know, he has such a modern style. Uh, you know, to me, he looked like the hunky guy from medieval times, like one of those theme parks, you yeah. know, Les Legrites. Uh, but the other interesting thing is they tell this in three parts. So it's first from the point of view of Damon's character, then Driver's character, then Comer's character. So you see the same events play out. Oh, so at first, like Rashomon. One, yeah, it's very Rashomon. So at first, like one character seems like a hero. And then in the next chapter, he's even shot from different angles and we see people laughing at him. And, you know, so there's all that kind of shifting points of view. I think it's just entertaining as hell, even though it's super violent uh, and has a lot of modern day combination of practical effects and special effects. It's also just an old fashioned who said what, who did what. And oh, by the way, when they get on those horses and they strap in with those big jousting things, man, it's just violent as fuck. <laughs> That's my quote for the uh, poster. <laughs> I don't think it's going to go, but they should put that in the commercial because the commercial does not do this film justice. I think it's going to be polarizing. Some people are going to put this on their worst 10 list, some on their best. I'm somewhere in between, but I liked it. Road Rubber Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Special thanks to our Executive producer, Renee Nelson, Tim Melanius. And we couldn't do this without our production manager, Demita Menezes. See you next time.